0: Heaven and earth collide. I love that line. That's what we pray for here. Pray with me. God, we pray for that. We want to, we want a collision this morning. We want you to invade here. Pray for uh, every person in this room, every person watching online, that uh, their hearts would be open, their ears would be open to what you want to do. That we would be drawn into uh, your will today in jesus name i pray amen all right well welcome to mosaic uh, our arctic circle location uh, please be cautious on your way out the penguins deserve the road as well um, i'm happy you're here you know it is literally a pastor's worst like fear that there will be a Saturday night snowstorm thing that happens. So I don't care if it snows on Monday, whatever, Tuesday, don't care, Wednesday, Thursday, whatever, Friday, I don't, I'm don't. i sorry, I don't care. But Saturday night, really, that's what it is. Uh, Some pumped you're here. And if you're watching online because it's too cold, I get it. Uh, I also wanted to stay in my pajamas, so welcome. Uh, I want to start this morning with one of my favorite quotes. I'm going to give you two in two versions. The first version is the version I've heard it my whole life, and then I read it. I read somebody added a little little uh, variation to it this week, and I think I'm going to keep it. I really like it. So, uh, one of my favorite quotes is that "good is the enemy of great." Good is the enemy of great. I've always really been drawn into that, um, but I heard a, a new twist on it where where the guy said, "Good is the mortal enemy of great." And I like that. Added a little extra oomph to it. Uh, Now, the reason I like the quote is because it's a little bit counterintuitive, almost paradoxical if you look at it. And maybe if you've never heard it before, you might be going, wait a minute, what? Good is the enemy of great? It doesn't sound like that's true at first. If you're looking for enemies of great, you would probably say, well then whatever the opposite of great is, that should be the enemy, right? So awful, abysmal, ghastly, horrible, that that would be the the mortal enemy of great. Opposite end of the spectrum, those two would be the greatest enemies. Um, But here in this quote, it says that good is the enemy of great. And that's weird because good appears to be on the same side as great, like they're wearing the same jersey, like you would almost say, hey, great is varsity and, and good is junior varsity. They're, they're at least you know from the same school. They're not enemies. Why would, why would good be the enemy, the mortal enemy of great? Um, well, the reason is because anytime you start doing something in your life, you're going to start off uh, horrible. Do you know that? When you start, you're, hor- you're horrible at stuff. You're allowed to be, by the way. You're allowed to be terrible at something when you first start. So you're going to start in terrible, and then you're going to make amaz- amazing, amazing progress, and you're going to end up bad, right? And so, that, by the way, that's where we're at right now, right? It's January 14th. You're just starting off. You just made progress from terrible to bad. That's good, okay? That's good progress. And then if you keep going, you're going to get to not so bad, and then you're going to arrive in the wonderful, m- magical land of, of mediocre. It's popular, very, very popular place is crowded here in, in mediocre. Then if you keep going, you'll get to not, uh, not quite good. And then you will arrive in good. And for the first time on your journey, you're going to, you're going to be really, really, really tempted to stop here and not continue on to great, even if you're called to great. And, and this is in any area of your life right? Um, as you're trying to improve your marriage, you're going to go through all those, those phases and you're going to hit good. You're going to have a good marriage. And this will be the place that it's tempting to stop, even though you may be called to great. Uh, as a parent, you're going to start off, you're going to start off as a terrible parent. You're going to get probably worse and then you'll get a little better and then, and then you'll make progress and then, and then you'll become a good parent and you'll be tempted to stop here, even though maybe you're called to be a great parent. This is going to be true in any area of your life. You're rarely tempted to stay bad, right? Like if you have a bad marriage, you're like, I just want to live this way forever, right? Never, never do you say that, right? The bad gives us motivation to change. Bad causes us to want to move along the spectrum. That's why bad isn't the the, the, the mortal enemy of great good is because good, you're, you're comfortable in good. Good is, is tempting to stay, which makes good the mortal enemy of great. It is great's largest competition. The choice between great and bad is easy. You're going to choose great. But the choice between good and great, if you consider the extra effort it takes to be great, I'm good with good. So good is the mortal enemy of great. However, as much as I like this statement, I think this is really important. You have to consider some stuff in your life. There are, everybody in this room, you, you have something that you're called to greatness in. You do, I believe that. I, whether it's a, a relationship or a, a skill uh, or, or some, some business you're starting or some skill that you have, I believe you're called to some kind of great. It's a really important thing for you to know that good is the mortal enemy of great because you're going to hit good and then you're going to be tempted to stop. And that's not good if God is calling you to great. I think it's important thing to know. However, as I was preparing this week, I think (laughs) I've observed that for some of us in the room, some of us watching online, that maybe there's another thing that might rival good as as great's mortal enemy, there's another thing that that could also compete against great in your life, and we're gonna we're gonna see this in uh, the story we look at today. A uh, story about a family, um, a family that is uh, they they have a family friend named Jesus. How cool would that be to have have Jesus as like your family friend? Like you're watching your kid play little league and Jesus shows up with a baseball cap on. Like wouldn't that be cool? Like cheering for your kid, telling you to stop yelling at the umpire. Like that would be awesome. Or that he comes to your Christmas party. Like not for a long time. You know, he'd stay for 15 minutes, happy birthday to me, and then he'd leave. Like that would be but wouldn't it be cool? if like he was just that kind of a, and, and that's the kind of feel you have with, with this family. You, you only see them a couple places in the Bible, but you just get the impression that they held a special place in Jesus heart and uh, they were family friends. So the family consists of a brother and two sisters, brother's name's Lazarus. And, uh, the sisters are Martha and Mary. And if you grew up in church, you've, you've heard all the stories about them. Uh, now, the, the backstory. So, so this story specifically, what happens is Jesus, Jesus traveled around Israel uh, preaching and sharing, sharing the good news everywhere he can, right? So he's, he's a traveling preacher. He doesn't have a home. He doesn't have a side gig, right? Jesus is fully supported by, by the people who uh, benefit from his ministry. So every town he goes to, he has to rely on the generosity of the people there. And in the town where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live... Um, they are the ones who always take him in. They are the ones who always are, are, are supporting him. And that's where we're at here. Uh, so just imagine the scene from Mary and Martha's perspective. You know, say it's like a Saturday and they're just chilling. Okay. You know, Mar- Mary's like laying down on the couch, scrolling through Facebook. And Martha's like over in like a rocking chair, like, I don't know, knitting something probably. Um, and they're just hanging out. And all of a sudden their doorbell rings and Mary checks the ring because she doesn't want to get up. Right? Cause nobody answers the door anymore. You just secretly watch people from your camera from a couple of rooms away. This is by the way, isn't every introvert just loves technology It's so amazing. You don't have to actually go and look at who's at the door. You can just secretly watch them on a camera and listen to their conversation with the people they're with. So she pulls out the ring. She's like, Martha, it's Jesus. Oh, and his disciples too. She's noticing that there's a whole, whole crowd of people with him. Now Mary's chill, but Martha immediately, and maybe some of you are like this, immediately has this like, thing happen. Her, her blood starts pumping, and she just starts frantically, you know, in that 30 seconds you have between the doorbell ringing and the answering, cleaning everything. She's got 30 seconds to clean her entire house and make sure everything's perfect. So she's just doing that while Mary's strolling up to the front door. And she's, she's getting it done and you know, she opens the door. Hey, Jesus, hey, all the disciples are coming in. And then Martha does that thing where she goes from you know, yelling at to kids to like, hey, it's so good to see you. You're just lying with your face, right? And uh, they all come in and, and they're all gathering into uh, whatever their living room would be like back then. They're, they're all here. So there's a crowd of people now in their house. Uh, the verse is Luke 10, 38. I'll read it to you. As Jesus' and his disciples were on their way from town to town, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Uh, so, so she's always taken Jesus in. So, so they're here now. You know, They've all done their hugs. They've all said hello. And they're, they're now sitting down, kind of settling into uh, her home. Now, the next two verses, we're gonna see uh, a contrast happen in the story, a stark contrast between how Martha handles this and how Mary handles this. Now, so far they both experienced the same thing, right? they both, Jesus has come into their home. These disciples have come into their home. This is the same experience. They've experienced the same thing. And now we're going to see the difference. Verse 39 in the beginning of 40. She, uh, Martha, had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. So again, same experience. Jesus comes in. He brings his posse with him. They're all here. Mary sits down and starts listening. Jesus starts dropping all this wisdom on him, all this spiritual knowledge on him. And Mary's listening. And Martha headed to the kitchen. And she starts preparing uh, food for all these people. Now, if you grew up in church, can you do something for me? Can you just forget that you know how the story goes? Can you, do, can you just, just erase that? you guys good at erasing? <laughs> just, just forget for a minute. Right now in the story, if you just stopped here, if you've never heard it before, you could make an argument about who's right and who's wrong here. right? You could have a, legit, you could have a legitimate debate. Um, again, you have to forget the end of the story. Just forget it for a second. Mary sat down to listen to Jesus. Martha went into the kitchen to make food for everybody who just came into their house. I don't know. Like, that, that's good. You know, and then this is, this is good, too. Like, I, it'd be hard to say who's right in the situation so far. But the story <laughs> is about to take a shift here. Um, there's a, a tone shift. Uh, so <laughs> I'll just read the second half of verse four. I'll just read it to you. Uh, she, Martha, came to him, Jesus, and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to come help me. Now, again, you, you, you always got to put yourself into the Bible story. So you just got to picture the scene. The house is full of people. Jesus is settled in and in their living room, people are just kind of sitting wherever they can, you know, people on the floor, people on chairs, people on the windowsill, you know, and they're all leaning in, locked in to Jesus. You know, anything that comes out of Jesus' mouth, you're just trying to absorb it. And they're all, you know, it's quiet, except him. But everybody can kind of hear in the room over you know, some pots and pans clanging around, you know, so the, 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 the rustle of someone doing something in the other room, you know, it's a little distracting. And, and maybe if, if Jesus is a little speaker thing, if there's a noise over here, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to get real loud so that you look at me over here and you ignore the baby that's crying over there. Is there one this week? Oh, <laughs> we're good this week. All the babies stayed home because it was too cold. Um, it's a little little speaker trick. If you got a distraction over here, you come over here, you get a little louder, and then you'll maybe hopefully pay attention to me and not the distraction. Maybe Jesus did that. Maybe he looked over here and got a little louder because he heard the noise in the kitchen. But all of a sudden, the door or the, the curtain hanging swings open, and Martha's just standing there, you know, her hand on her hip. Now, she's not all the way rude, so she's waiting for a pause, Right? And Jesus is still going. And maybe some of the disciples are like looking at her, like, what's she what's she gonna do? And the moment Jesus takes a breath, she pops off here. Lord, don't you care? Think everybody in the room goes, What did you just say? And then my sister's left me to do all the work by myself. Tell her to come and help me. Not, hey, Jesus, do you think maybe? No, tell her to come and help me. She just demanded, demanded that Jesus do something. Man, can you imagine the tension in the room? <laughs> Somebody just barges in, interrupts Jesus, tells Jesus what to do. Everybody's just sitting here like, what's he going to do? Like, Peter's like, this is awkward. Like, what, 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 what just happened? I wonder what the look on Mary's face was. I mean, she always does this crap, you know? Now, a little side note. If, at this point, no, so from Martha's perspective, you would agree with me that Martha thinks she's right here, right? She won't come barching and margin into a room saying, ah, tell her to do it. She thinks she's right. She thinks Mary's wrong. However, I think it's kind of obvious that what Martha does here, the way she deals with this is Wrong, right? Like doing it this way, like talking to Jesus like that—that's wrong, right? So, Mary was wrong, but Martha reacted to Mary's wrongness. Wrong. This is a lesson. If you're maybe married, Um, if you think your spouse is wrong and you react wrong to their wrongness, you're going to be wrong too. Do you know that? It's just—it's just bad. You—you're getting sucked all the way into it. So even if Martha was right, by the way, she's not. But even if she was. Now she's not, <laughs> now she's not because she's, she's responded to the wrong with the wrong and now she's wrong even if Mary's also wrong. And that's just something to keep in mind as you deal with these kinds of things in your life. Your reactions to things can suck you into that and now you're going to, you're going to end up having a consequence for your wrong reaction to someone else's wrong. Now that's not what's happening in the story though. That's Martha's perspective But if you're still wondering who's right, Mary or Jesus, Jesus is going to clear this up for us in verses 41 and 42. Here's what he says. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or need only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Now, I don't know if you know this. When you're reading the Bible, you can always insert your own tone to it. I don't, that's really important. By the way, Some, you can read a verse in the wrong tone and get the wrong, like meaning to the verse. And I think sometimes people read this at least like when I was growing up in church, this was always read as like a rebuke, Martha, Martha, like, what are you interrupting my preaching for? <laughs> you know, shut up. Mary's listening. and You're not go back to the kitchen or something like that, you know, like, right. That would be horrible. Um, but the tone here, I think, man, if you take into account everything that you know about Jesus, I think Martha came in hot and loud, and I think Jesus almost whispered this to her. You know, Proverbs says that a gentle answer turns away wrath. And I think and Martha was up here, Lord, don't you care? And I'll tell her to come in and help me. And Jesus is like, Martha, Martha. And I think this is a gracious thing. I think he is extending her grace in a place, well, because she doesn't deserve it, right? He, he maybe she deserved to get you know, smacked by Jesus for this. Like, you, you can't talk to God like that. Like, what are you doing? But I think his answer is full of grace and love. And what he's trying to do is pull her out of this emotionally frenzied place to see a deeper truth. This is, this is a grace. This is a mercy from Jesus. And I think there's some comfort in that to know that God uh, wants to gently draw us out of the places that we go, uh, that are wrong. So that's where Martha's at. All right. Now you could argue that Mary chose great and Martha chose good at this point. Right. Cause this is not, we don't think Martha was doing something bad, right? She, it didn't say Mary sat down and listened to Jesus, you know, and Martha was out back doing drugs. It did not say that, right? She wasn't, she wasn't planning a bank robbery in the kitchen coming in. Jesus, tell Mary to get her ski mask. We got to pay for this ministry somehow. Like she didn't do that, right? That wasn't, it's not the, the choice between great and bad. It's great and good. It's great and good, which is why this was hard for Martha to see. You, you can you can tell how she would come to the conclusion that she should have been in the kitchen instead of, talking to or listening to Jesus. But I think there's another factor at play here, and this is the thing. This is the thing that I think might challenge good for the crown of great's mortal enemy. And and uh, not everybody in the room, but for some of us, this is the thing. This is the thing that's going to stop you from ever hitting great. In your life, the rival for mortal enemy of great in your life is the urgent, the urgent, the immediate, the distraction, the thing that hits you in your face and demands your attention in that moment right now. That could be the greatest threat to great in your life. Because think about it. Martha was not just doing these preparations. She was doing these preparations under duress. I bet if you gave Martha a couple months notice that you were coming, she seems like the kind of person who would have had appetizers waiting in the living room and all of the drinks over on the side and like all the placeholders and everything would have been ready already. It wasn't just that she chose good over great. It's that she chose urgent over great. It was the right now in her face thing that distracted her away from what was the most important thing. And I wonder, if for you, often, the reason you don't pursue great is because you don't have time because you are constantly getting hit with the urgent, the buzzing in your pocket, the ding of an email the mom, dad, from across the house, the last-minute request from your boss, that horrible sentence, hey, can we talk, that hunger pang in your stomach, the, the, the urgent, the immediate, the right-now-in-your-face demand upon you. I wonder if that, that, maybe more than anything else, is preventing you from pursuing great in areas of your life that God has called you to great. That you're not even on this, this journey. You are on side quests constantly so that you never make progress. You are perpetually distracted with the urgent. Have you heard the term? I learned a term this week. It's called the work martyr complex. Work mar- Have you heard of work martyr? You probably have you, even if you don't have a term for it, you've met them. Hopefully it's now you, uh, <laughs> a work martyr is someone who wears their busyness as a badge of honor. Like, like now it's weird because it's almost, a, it's almost a dichotomy within them. They, they, they feel more important because they're always running around like crazy but they also have this attitude like nobody helps and nobody does as much as I do. Kind of one of those. So they, 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 they really feel like this is a, a gold star for me. I have to run around like crazy all the time. And I've known some people like this where they're almost, there's almost something off about them if they're not in a hurry, if they're not frantic. They almost go into, a, I want to say, almost like a depressive state because they're, they, they view these urgent interruptions to their life as evidence that they have importance or purpose. And they just chase any any urgent thing like it's what they're supposed to do. Someone who perpetually lives in the urgent. Man, I hope that's not you. That would be maybe the most extreme version. So, we're in a series right now called You in Five Years. And what we've been doing is we have been taking out uh, our telescope, our, our future telescope, and we've been imagining uh, what our life could and should be like in five years. What, what God wants our life to look like five years from now. That's what we've been doing. Not, not what it is going to be, but what, we, what it could be and what it should be. Like we're dreaming here. We're man. What, what, what could God do in the next five years? What would my life be like five years from now? I wake up in the morning and man, God has just moved and everything has clicked. And this is what my life could look like five years from now. So what I want to do today is I want to zoom in on your calendar five years from now, your schedule. Uh, How are you spending your time five years from now? If you could zoom in, you're looking through the telescope. Can you zoom in on the phone when you click over to the calendar app? Can you zoom in on that? And can you see what it looks like? What does your calendar look like five years from now? You busy? You still frantic? You stressed? You constantly getting hit in the face with urgent? I hope that as you're imagining your life five years from now, that you're not imagining some stressed out, frantic person. I I can't, I can't think that that's what you're doing here. I hope not. My hope is that you are imagining a person who's living in great, where God has called you to great, that you're living in great, that you're spending a bunch of time on great, to pursue great, to live in great. That you're not constantly distracted with all of these these urgent things. That you're not stressed and frantic and worried all the time. That you want to live a life of purpose. You know, a destiny-fulfilling kind of a thing. But here you are. Here you are. And there's some distance between you and that. So how can we get there? How can we, and, and listen, part of the reason we're given five years is because it's going to take a while, right? It's going to take a while to get to, to that. It's going to take some, some choices that we, we're going to make between now and then to, to live a life in this, this great category. So what can we do? You now, and what your schedule looks like, and how you feel, and how much urgent and frantic and stress and all that stuff you deal with, versus you five years from now living in purpose. And greatness, God's definition. So I want to learn from Martha here. I think there's a ton of lessons in this little story from Martha. Uh, we'll just do four. Uh, here's the first one. If you're going to pursue that life, if you're going to pursue a life living out important and great things, um, you need to know that the urgent disguises itself as important. The urgent disguises itself as important. This is why I would call urgent. It's it's a little sneaky. It's a little sinister. It's a little insidious. Uh, when when something urgent happens, it feels important, right? When something urgent happens, it feels important on the inside. You feel like the thing is important. If your phone buzzes in your pocket, you feel like it's important. Probably not. No offense but you feel like you gotta pull it out and find out what it is. And, And Martha, when that knock at the door happened, she felt like the most important thing was for her to go make food in the kitchen. The urgent in her mind felt important. But so often, so often, what is urgent is actually not important. It's dressed up as important. It's, it's lying to you about being important. And it is going to steal from what is really important. How much of your time are you spending on important things that are or on urgent things that are not important? How much are you allowing the urgent in your life to pull you off course away from important and great things that God has for you? How often is it happening? Listen, I'm not, I don't know. I'm not saying it is. You have to decide this. You have to think about this. You have to reflect on this. Is the urgent dominating your life? Is the urgent maybe even dictating some of the direction of your life? Now I know some of you are like, hold up, hold up. Sometimes when my phone buzzes, this is an emergency. Maybe. Maybe. And I'm not saying that's not positive. Every, every once in a while, your phone rings and it is actually an emergency and you do actually have to go handle it. Every once in a while, when your kids scream from the other end of the house, they're actually hurt. Super rare, because they have to be bleeding for that to be true, but like it's, it's every once in a while, right? But most of the time, urgent is not actually important. Wouldn't it be awful to wake up five years from now and see that the urgent has stolen Hours and hours and days and months and maybe even years from your life of pursuing the great that God has for you. You've allowed the urgent to pull you and pull you and pull you and pull you. And you look back on these five years and you go, ah, the urgent has lied and stolen from me. Don't let that happen. I had this, uh, I'll share this with you. I, I hated it, so I'm sure you will too. (laughs) I was talking to this uh, woman who used to to own a gym. We had this conversation. It was probably January because these are the times that we asked these questions. I was talking about stuff and I was asking her like diet questions, you know. And she said this line to me, and I I really, really hated it, but she said, What you need to remember is that (laughs) hunger is not an emergency. And I said, shut up. <laughs> She's like, when you're hungry, it's not an emergency. It's not. You treat it like it is. You act like it is. It, it presents itself as if it is an emergency. But it isn't. And, that's, and that, when you treat your hunger like an emergency, causes you to make really stupid decisions because you're, you're treating it like it's important when really it's just urgent and you're trying to solve a problem in a wrong way. And I was like, again, shut up. <laughs> but... I think the lesson there, and it stuck with me. It stuck with me. Every time my my stomach growls, I I have to try and remind myself, hey, it's not an emergency. I've got insurance against emergency. I'm I'm good. I'm I'm covered. But it's a really good illustration. I mean, it's good in and of itself, but it's also a good illustration of how we make decisions where we allow urgent to feel important, and it makes us make wrong decisions. Don't do that. Don't, don't, Don't make the same mistake Martha makes here in allowing the urgent to dress itself up is important. Second thing. Second thing. And this is on display in this story. Messed up priorities lead to messed up attitudes toward God and others. Messed up priorities lead to messed up attitudes towards God and towards the people in your life. This is a really short story in the Bible. I don't even know if you can call it a story. It's kind of a micro story in the Bible. Martha has two lines. Her speaking part is two sentences. And they are jam packed, if I may, they are jam packed with attitude. The first thing she says, the first thing Martha says out of her mouth, Lord, don't you care? That is a pretty heavy accusation against Jesus, right? She goes right to, don't you care? But. Like, where does that come from? Think about the reality that Martha is living in right now. She is frantic. She is overwhelmed. She is, she is feeling the stress of this situation. She, she feels like she's the only one in it. She walks out the door into this room and she sees Jesus just sitting there all calm, just teaching. She's frantic. He's calm. So her instinct was to go, you don't care. You don't care. You're not matching my energy here, Jesus. I'm, I'm overwhelmed. I'm stressed. Why, why aren't you? And then, not only does she have, I mean, because again, that's, that's, wow. To accuse Jesus of not caring it has to be pretty, it's a pretty deep accusation. And then, she doesn't stop there. I mean, that's pretty big she's like, Jesus, look at my lazy sister just sitting there doing nothing. <laughs> Tell her take it off her lazy butt and help me, right? Make you a sandwich in the kitchen. <laughs> like, so she's in this place. And okay, from Martha's perspective, I'm doing this. I'm overwhelmed. I'm stressed out. I'm the only one who cares about this. She walks in, mad at Jesus, I can't believe you're letting this happen, and mad at her sister for not helping her. She sees in the story, I think if we're being honest, she sees Jesus and Mary as the source of her stress. Jesus, if you would help me, Mary, if you would help me, I wouldn't be stressed. It's on them. That's her perspective. That's her little bubble of reality. But that's not what's actually happening, is it? What's really happening, what's really happening is that Martha is making decisions with priorities that are out of order. It's not Jesus, it's not Mary that is the source of her stress. It's her priorities. It's her priorities. So listen, I'm going to say this as gently as I can, but God's not going to help you live an out-of-order life. God's not going to help you live an out-of-order life. Martha barged in the room demanding Jesus help her and in that even had this feeling like he doesn't even care. And I think that's what happens when you have priorities that are all out of whack. The accusation is that God doesn't care. But could it be, could it be that if you have this feeling that God's not even helping me, that maybe he isn't in that, he's not going to help you manage out of order priorities. That that Jesus wasn't looking at Martha going, oh shoot, I got to help you not listen to me. (laughs) I got to help you not be in this room right now where you're supposed to be. He wasn't going to help her be better at managing upside-down priorities. He wasn't going to help her do that. Now, she felt like this is the important thing. She felt like that means he doesn't care. Her feeling was he didn't care. But the truth was that he actually cared more than she realized because he would rather her stop all that and get her priorities straight. That's what he really wanted. Man. So, I'm going to ask you, and this is, this is you, you have to decide this. You have to decide this. This is not me saying it. Or just you, have to, you have to, this is your own life. You know your own life. What percentage of like the chaos and the stress in your life comes from priorities that are out of whack? What percentage? You, you've got 100% of your stress, 100% of your chaos, 100% of your frantic, overwhelmed feeling. You're like, okay, a big chunk of this is just my kids, right? just kids as we'll was labeled kids. We know that what, okay, fine. What percentage though of the stress and the, and the frantic craziness is that you actually have priorities that are out of order and you're looking to God to help you with all this stress, but God's up and going, I'm not going to help you keep your priorities wrong. He wants to help you get your priorities right. Again, you, you have to decide this, but is it possible that some of the stress in your life comes from the fact that you have elevated lesser things and you have demoted the most important things? Is that possible? That might be the source of chaos and honestly, the source of a little bit of your attitude towards God and others. Maybe it's a priority thing. All right, third thing. Third thing we we see from Martha. (sighs) I really like these. An out loud yes always includes a silent no. An out loud yes always includes a silent no. When you say yes to some things, you are automatically saying no to other things. A yes here means a no here. Martha could not make a meal in the kitchen and listen to Jesus in the living room at the same time. When she said yes to this thing, she said a silent no to that thing. A silent no. If you asked Martha, hey, should you, do you think it's important to listen to Jesus? She would have said Absolutely. If you ask Martha, hey, do you think you should ever turn down a chance to listen to Jesus? She'd be like, no way. But Martha didn't see that. Martha was so focused on the things she was saying yes to that she didn't even see the silent no that she said over here. It's your silent no's that I'm worried about. It's your silent no's. It's the things you're saying no to that you don't even realize you're saying no to. It's, it's the nose that you ignore. It's the nose that you don't acknowledge or you don't even know you're saying. Every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. Every time the out loud. Yes, you're focused on that. You're saying a bunch of silent noes over here. So for example, I'll give you an easy example. Have you read like the statistics on family dinner? If you have kids, they're crazy. This is like the scientific studies that they're doing on family dinners. nuts. How important of a, of a habit that is to have. So they, they, they've done studies and they, they have a, a connection between uh, a regular family dinner sitting around at a table. Here's what they say. It, it, regular family dinners are associated with lower rates of depression, anxiety, substance abuse, eating disorders, tobacco, and early teenage pregnancy. Dinner is... Birth control doesn't even seem possible, but they're saying there is a, a direct correlation between families that do that regularly and all those things being down, and then also uh, it's associated with higher resilience, higher self esteem, and higher grades. Kids who have a regular meal with their family have higher grades. I even read a study for even the little kids who are like learning how to talk. They said regular family dinners teach them how to communicate better than like reading to them every night. They're saying family dinner through the roof, huge, massive, important thing. It'll shape your family. I'm like, man, what a simple thing (laughs) to say, hey, not every night, but we're going to make sure that this is a regular rhythm in our family's life, that we're going to sit at a dinner table together and eat and talk and fight a little bit sometimes, but you know. Now, if I asked you, what is your official stance on eating dinner together regularly as a family? Nobody in this room is going to go, I'm against it, <laughs> right? I don't, I don't, I don't, <laughs> you might not want to, but yeah, I, I don't want to eat dinner with my family. I never want to do that. I am against that. That is a bad thing. I say no to that. You would never do that. You would never do it. Nobody would take that stance. That's an outrageous stance to take. But if you're constantly saying yes to other things, whether you realize it or not, you're saying no to that. If you filled your life up, if you said yes to to this practice and yes to this rehearsal and yes to this lesson and yes to this and yes to that and yes to this and yes to that, if you filled the calendar up over here, you set a silent no to that. You set a silent no to that. And, and so here's the day. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. Nothing wrong with any of those things. You, again, those are, actually, those are all good things, right? N- nobody's like, hey, I just want to teach my kid how to deal drugs. Like, can we just do... Like, you're not saying that, right? Because that would be an easy thing to, to say. We shouldn't do that. These are good things. These are good things. So I'm not telling you not to do those things. What I'm telling you is, when you put something on your calendar... You're saying yes to something. You're also saying no to other things. Every time you put something on your calendar, you need to consider the silent no that you're saying. Don't just put it on there focused on the thing you're saying yes to. You have to also include the things you're saying no to. Count the whole cost, not part of the cost. Because again, I think, ask Martha, were you doing a good thing? She'd be like, of course I was doing a good thing. People were hungry, I wanted to feed them. That's a good thing. She could defend that all day long. But hey, Martha, you silently said no to listening to Jesus. Did you include that in the equation as you were making that decision? I don't think she did. So I just want you to slow down long enough to say, hey, every time I say yes to something, I'm saying no to something else. What is the silent no? What am I saying no to? Count the cost and make sure you're really okay with it. All right, last thing that we can learn from Martha and Mary. One of the most sacred and spiritual things you do in your life is choose. Choose. Choice. You have the power of choice. The God-given gift of choice. The future-altering power of choice in your life. What was the difference between Martha and Mary in this story? There are a lot of differences, right? Right? But it all started with one, one difference. And Jesus said it, did you catch it? Jesus said, Mary has chosen. Mary has chosen. Mary chose, Mary made a choice. And again, they were in the same situation. They both were experiencing the same thing. They were responding to the same variables. Mary chose to sit and listen to Jesus. Did Martha choose? Now here's the thing she did, but my guess is if you asked her, she wouldn't have, she wouldn't act like she chose. She probably felt like circumstances dictated her life to her. She probably felt like she had no choice, like, Hey, Nobody else was going to feed these people. Nobody else was going to do that. I had to do that. I didn't choose to do it. Circumstance thrust it upon me, and I just had to respond to that. She would have the attitude like she didn't choose. And because of that, she made a bad one. And I think one of the most important things for you in your life, especially as you consider your life five years from now, is to constantly remember that you have the power to choose. 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 And it's one of the most spiritual things that you do. Maybe it's the most. You're like, reading my Bible is the most spiritual thing I do. No, um, the thing, you know what you did before you read the Bible? You chose to. Praying is the most spiritual thing I do. Well, you know what you did before you prayed? You chose to pray. What if choice is this thing, this amazing thing that God has given you, this responsibility, this, this power to choose in your life? I mean, yeah, before you came to church today, you chose to come to church today. Before you started watching this, you chose to watch this. Before you got married, you chose to get married. Before you had kids, you chose, well, chose some things. Every single thing on your calendar, before it got put there, there was a choice. There was a choice. What I don't want for you is for you to live your life constantly feeling like, I didn't really choose it, I just kind of had to do that. I just, I I had, you know, I didn't really, it was just circumstances and I just, you have the power to choose. Don't give that up. Don't, don't give it away. You need to fiercely own that power. Take responsibility for that power. If you don't, I feel like the, the, the worst decisions you make are the ones that you don't think you made. You just think you just had to. But your calendar five years from now is gonna look the way it looks because you choose it. Because you choose it. You make your choices and then your choices make you. What would it look like? What would it look like for you to take those choices and ask God every single time, hey, what should I do? What What if Martha, all she had to do, all she had to do, Was walk up and whisper in Jesus' ear, hey, I wasn't ready. I don't have any food. What do you think that guy would have done? This is the one who feeds thousands of people with like a fish, right? You think he couldn't, he'd be like, hey, Martha, I got it. Sit down. Done. All she had to do was ask. What if, what if as you, as you, Uh, Have every choice that you have to make even ones that feel like you don't get to make them what if you laid them before God and said hey God should we do this what if as you make that calendar yeah your spouse gets invited to that conversation yeah your kids get invited to that conversation sometimes what if you invited God into the conversation of hey here's the month here's the year here's what's going on the calendar hey God what should we do here and that allow that to flavor every day, every week, every month, every year, then what would it look like five years from now? Pray with me. God, I'm so grateful for both Mary and Martha. Would I pray for the people who feel like their life is dominated with the urgent in this room right now, Lord. Ah, I pray that you would give them peace, that you would give them the ability to slow down the knowledge that they have a choice to respond to the urgent or not, that they can choose great over urgent, that they can choose great over good Lord, I pray for everybody in this room that we would, we would include you in the conversation, that we would ask you before we make a choice, hey, should this go here? That would begin to flavor our life. Lord, I pray for this church, that we would do that, Lord, that we would not get stuck in the urgent, but that we would pursue the great that you have for us. Lord, I pray for peace in that and wisdom to choose the life that you are calling us to. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.